0: The following podcast contains explicit language.
1: It's Tuesday, August 1st, 2017 from Slate. It's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. Today I read a newspaper story about how Scaramucci was out as White House communications director. And I said, wait, wait, didn't that happen like two, three days ago? Wait, I'm trying to get my timeline straight. Didn't he push out Reince Priebus in like February? Didn't Spicer walk out in a huff in August of seventy-eight? Everything happens so fast that sitting on White House personnel news for a few hours without an update or an alert or a change, it makes it feel like the news was written in parchment and that Ken Burns already did a 10-part series on it. And I love Sam Waterstead as Reince and Anthony LaPaglia as both the voices of Mooch and Australian Prime Minister Turnbull. Mooch, in like four days... Becomes the second most famous person in America, gets divorced, has a baby, achieves all of his staffing goals, gets fired, and now seems like old news. He is the Osbournes Reloaded of political life. Cancelled after one episode. The Hasselhoffs lasted for two. While most people see him as a giant failure, looked at it in a certain way through the orange filtered lens, he is the greatest affirmation of the Trumpian worldview ever. He came in, he shook things up, he had an impact, he was gone in moments. He also equaled Trump's number of divorces and did not change diapers, important in the Trump universe. The deep state burrows in for life, and a typical bureaucrat will drag his feet and justify his existence, maybe get something done, but make sure to stretch it out and pull a salary. Not Mooch. Wham, bam, cock block you, ma'am. Before Steve Bannon even begins his multi-part limbering up routine, Mooch achieves all, and like that... He is gone. And so those were the events of the week of July 1962. Algeria gains independence. Willie Mays leads the San Francisco Giants over the Houston Colt 45s. And the Mooch does his Mooch thing. On the show today, in the spiel, uh, it's a long one. It's what you've been waiting for. Mike explains his thoughts about the concepts of things like white privilege and rape culture could be a bit of a third rail, might want to break it up into chunks needed to be said. There are those who disagree with that assessment, and yet I say it. But first, here's one theory, emotions are real. It's more than a theory, it's a fact, right? Well, a psychology professor has looked at the evidence and found it wanting. She is here to describe a more plausible story of how emotions are made. Because his wife says, you know, what that picture and that man means to you, it doesn't mean to other people, and you have to understand that. And then in the interview, they got around to the point where McChrystal talked about that interview in Rolling Stone magazine that pretty much ended his career, where it got to the desk of Barack Obama, and it had McChrystal saying unflattering things about the war effort and just how he talked to his wife and how they decided not to be bitter and not to wallow in. He could've taken some shots at the process, the reporter or the president at that point, but he didn't. It was just an overall good interview. It was facilitated by Jordan's excellent interview style. Whether Jordan is conducting an interview or giving advice to a listener, you will find something useful that can apply to your own life in every single episode of the Jordan Harbinger Show. That could mean learning how to ask for advice the right way or discovering a little mindset tweak that changes how you see the world. Search for the Jordan Harbinger Show. That's H-A-R, like the first three letters in hard, B-I-N-G-E, as in how you'll want to catch up on all the episodes on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. If I told you that someone had flown into a rage, picture in your mind what you might be seeing. Maybe the person would have a clenched fist, or maybe the person, it would be a seething rage, and the person would just have an expression on their face that, if you didn't know about the rage, might be inscrutable. Or think about one of these horrible spree killers who, in a rage, goes about his business, but he seems, they always described as outwardly very methodical. Or I could show you a picture of Serena Williams having won the U.S. US Open tennis championship. And everyone would say, my God, that's a person in a rage. But in fact, she is exalting. Uh, That is a psychological experiment, one of many contained in the book, How Emotions Are Made, The Secret Life of the Brain. Lisa Feldman Barrett is the author of that book and a distinguished professor of psychology at Northeastern University. No garden variety professors here. (laughs) Hello. How are you, (laughs) Professor Barrett?
0: I'm terrific. Thanks so much for having me on your show. Sure.
1: So I wanted to talk about how emotions are made. So much of your research is based on, well, okay, when someone experiences an emotion, what measurement can uh, that emotion be said to reliably produce? And I think you show emotions mean a lot of different things, and there's never any one thing that one emotion could be relied upon to
0: produce. Absolutely. So, People do a lot of different things uh, with their bodies. There is no fingerprint for any emotion. So people smile when they're sad. They cry when they're angry. They scream when they're happy. A person can tremble in fear, jump in fear, freeze in fear, hide in fear, attack in fear, even laugh in the face of fear. And each time, your body is doing something really different, right? Mm -hmm. We have to be able to account for this variability. So the first chapter really just shows the scientific evidence that there are no fingerprints physical fingerprints for emotion there are there is no brain circuit you know one for anger one for sad one for fear and then the rest of the book is really attempting to explain really how your brain is making emotion what your body actually behaves in emotion and why you should care how is it useful to know
1: so in rage and i want to take rage but not something like love which i think we'd all it's more likely to admit that that's a construct but rage i mean societies have it animals have it you need it in war uh we've all experienced it when i say it it evokes a feeling in people are you saying that a adrenaline doesn't spike. Are you saying that heart rate doesn't have to increase? Are you saying that my rage might be so different from your rage that we're like the uh, stoned college sophomores who are saying maybe my purple's your yellow?
0: <laughs> I wouldn't go so far as to say uh, that my uh, your purple is my yellow. Rage is not a thing. It's not an event that has a single facial expression, a single physical state, when you're enraged, if somebody cuts you off on the highway, if you are enraged that um, someone has stolen something from you, you know, each of these instances, what your brain is doing is it's creating an instance of rage that is finely tuned to the situation that you're in. And your body is preparing to act in a way that is best suited to that situation based on your own past experience or things that you've learned in your culture. That's what I'm saying. So your heart rate would not go up in every instance of rage. You would not scream in every instance of rage. In fact, every instance of rage may not be unpleasant for you. There are some instances of pleasant rage. You know, there's um, moments where people feel tremendous aggression, but they experience it as in an exuberant, pleasant Way.
1: But OK, does this mean that other people can't really do something that's enraging? It's all on us. If someone insults me, I mean, obviously, we all have different thresholds, but there are some actions which might provoke a response. And I would say a vast majority of people would say, well, that response is warranted if he said that to you about your mom.
0: So here's the thing. The way that your brain is wired, my brain, every every brain actually on the planet is wired, it, it's not wired to react to the world. It's wired to predict. This is true no matter what we're talking about, whether we're talking about emotion or we're talking about thinking or we're talking about something simple as perception. So, for example, right now it may seem to you as if I am speaking and you're reacting to my words. Mm -hmm. But in fact, based on years and years of learning, your brain is actually predicting every single word that comes out of my... Hello? Mouth. Yeah. (laughs) That was every single word that comes out of my mouth.
1: I see what you were doing there, but for a second I got scared about Skype. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah.
0: Because your brain is predicting all the time. So does that mean that you yourself are solely responsible for what you feel? Well, no, it doesn't. But it means that you have more control over your feelings than you might imagine. Knowing that you have a predictive brain allows you to use an entirely new set of strategies to control your emotions. Yeah. And in the book, you
1: talk about, you were just talking about predictions and you talk about how predictions and concepts are really the same thing. Uh, Happiness, is it a concept or is it a prediction of how you're going to react when a certain set of circumstances occur? Could you get into that a little?
0: Yeah. I mean, what I would say is it's both. So brains are not structured to react to the world. That's too energy consuming, too metabolically costly. Instead, your brain is structured to predict. So playing baseball, if you when you see a, a pitcher uh, about to throw a ball to a batter, it looks like the batter is just reacting to the pitcher's throw and swings the bat to hit the ball. But in fact, if the batter was actually waiting until he saw the ball in order to swing at it.
1: Right. He'd never be able to catch up with it.
0: He'd never be able to right. catch up with it because he you can't you can't mount a motor response that quickly. Right. So instead what the batter is doing is the batter is predicting where the pitcher's gonna throw the ball. And he's his brain is he's not doing this consciously. It's just an automatic thing your brain does. And he and his his brain is preparing him to swing at where the predicted ball will be. Right. What looks like a simple game of a ball with a stick is actually this really dramatic game of deception uh, between a batter and a pitcher, right? The batter is trying to guess what the pitcher is going to do. The pitcher is trying to psych the batter out. And so it's this competition of wits, basically, to see who can, um, you know, who can outwit the other one, basically.
1: right. And, and the batter knows where to put his batter, thinks he does based on the... Tens of thousands, if not more, of instances of being in a similar situation. And so the best baseball batter in the world, who we can assume if he grew up in England and played cricket instead of baseball, might be good at cricket. But when you take a baseball player and uh, let him face a cricket bowler, since he doesn't have that uh, experience, he's not as good. He doesn't connect as well. And I think maybe that is a rough analogy for how different cultures uh, react to different concepts of emotion. Absolutely. Absolutely and And so, are there any cultures out there where your concept of emotion more aligns with their concept of emotion than our Western culture does? It's not inevitable, and it's a thing that uh, is a reaction uh, t- and a prediction to outside stimuli, that sort of thing.
0: There are other cultures, for example, if you look at contemplative philosophy, Buddhist philosophy, um some of the cultures that use that philosophy believe that you are the architect of your own experience. They don't talk about prediction so much, but what they talk about is the idea that you construct your own experiences and you can also dissolve those experiences. You can deconstruct them into mere sensations. One of the common elements in in this approach to thinking about what it means to be human is that you are constructing the present based on what you know from the past, and therefore you can deconstruct it as well.
1: And you believe more or less that we are the architect of our own
0: emotional state? Well, belief is a tricky word for a scientist. Here's what I would say. <laughs> you know, I if I were just hearing for the first time that, oh, you know, you don't react to the world, y- you predict what's going to happen next, and you are the architect of your own experience, you can separate distress from discomfort you have the mental capacity to do these things i would personally have a hard time believing it like everybody else to me it feels like my emotions erupt uh and i have to kind of control them after the fact there are certainly moments where i feel that especially when we're talking about really strong intense emotions
1: right you know or or just thinking or just the statement well everyone would get upset by that right (laughs) that statement we all subscribe to yeah
0: Absolutely. It's very upsetting. How
1: could you not be upset? Yeah. Yeah,
0: exactly. But here's the thing in science, a theory is not a set of ideas, it's a set of ideas that are supported by experimental evidence. And the theory that I lay out in the book is supported by anatomy, brain imaging studies, studies of physiology, studies of the electrical functioning of neurons. It's supported by a lot of behavioral evidence from observing children um, and observing people across different cultures. And what it does is it also opens up a whole new, for scientists, it opens up a whole new set of questions, which is really, that's how science progresses. You know, it doesn't always answer questions, it just asks better ones. But more importantly for the average person what it does is it leads you to realize that you have more responsibility, more control, and responsibility for your own emotions, but also more control and responsibility over what other people feel as well.
1: Okay, I wanted to ask you about acting. Uh, Martin Lando, the late, recently late Martin Lando, shows up in the book. And early on, we talk about um, how poor we are at perceiving expressions uh, based on what the, uh, what the, person is actually feeling so then acting it's not based on oh I'll put on a look if I'm an actor and I'll convince people that this look meets sadness. I mean, the technique is that the actor is supposed to actually access some piece of sadness and be in the moment and feel the sadness. If the perception of someone else's facial expression, say, is also, well, not random, but definitely not regimented. How is it that some people consistently come across as good actors and that their registering of emotion feels to the audience like, oh, she's really experiencing that emotion?
0: Yeah, so that's a great question, and here's what I would say: the kinds of physical movements that you make in any emotion, during any emotion—sadness, anger, fear, gratitude, awe, whatever—they um, are not random, but they are highly variable. So the important thing to understand when you're trying to figure out, well, then how can you look at someone know how they feel? How does that work exactly? Well, how it works is that a face doesn't speak for itself when it comes to emotion. There's no physical change that occurs in your body that is by itself an emotion. You have to make it an emotion. You have to create it. So when you look at Martin Lando's face or any actor's face or any other person's face for that matter, what you're doing is you're making sense of those facial movements in the context in which you're in. A great actor doesn't make stereotyped expressions. And they are able to tailor their physical movements when they're acting in a way that is intimately, precisely calibrated to the surrounding context, including the temporal context, meaning not just like what situation they're in, but also what just happened before and what is going to happen next. What a great actor does is also what a great um, communicator does. You're using your actions and the sound of your voice and the words that you speak in a way that controls the mental predictions that the other person's brain is uh, constructing.
1: And the last thing I want to ask you about is I was thinking a lot about microaggressions, the concept of microaggressions, because you write about how being the architect of emo- of your own emotions, and you write that if your culture doesn't have A word for an emotion, you're less likely to feel the emotion. So I was thinking about microaggressions. Maybe, I mean, what do you think of this? But it seems to me that if I don't believe in microaggressions or if I think it's much ado about nothing, it probably is to me and I'm less likely to feel them. But if I hear this concept or I start to buy into this concept, then I will actually experience the concept in a way that some skeptic of the concept might not experience.
0: Microaggressions are this really tricky um, phenomenon because the fact is that it is possible for people to be aggressive to you in ways that are implicit or that are subtle. That being said, it's also, you know, we have things like resting bitch face and other (laughs) kinds of, you know, resting bitch face is actually just a structurally neutral face. Somebody who, whose muscle, whose facial muscles are just at rest. There's actually no expression there. People perceive an expression, but there's no actual expression there. And a lot of times a microaggression is, um, one person constructing the meaning out of, um, an aggressive meaning out of of a set of facial movements or, or words or actions from another person who um, didn't intend any aggression at all. You are guessing when you are making sense of somebody else's actions or words, when you are creating a perception, when your brain is doing this in a very automatic way, it's guessing it's guessing at the intention of the other person. It's guessing At the meaning of those actions, um, no matter how confident you are about your ability to read other people, your brain is always just guessing, and then it's checking those guesses against what's going on in the world and either correcting them or not. So microaggressions are this really tricky area where can people be aggressive to each other in veiled ways? Absolutely. But is the concept probably overused? Yeah. 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 I think so.
1: Lisa Feldman Barrett is a professor at Northeastern, and she is the author of How Emotions Are Made: The Secret Life of the Brain. Thank you so much.
0: Been my pleasure.
1: And now the spiel. Here are some facts about the African-American experience. In 2010, the U.S. Sentencing Commission reported that African-Americans received 10% longer sentences than whites through the federal system for the same crimes. Of exonerated black prisoners, they were 22% more likely to have been convicted due to misconduct by police officers than with exonerated white defendants. The unemployment rate for blacks is roughly twice the unemployment rate for whites. Now, educational attainment varies, but when you compare black college grads to white college grads, black college grads still have almost double the unemployment rate. Here's another one. African-Americans are 2.7 times as likely to be killed by police as whites. Now, all of these facts, to me, are horrible, maddening, and real. And I could cite thousands more, thousands of facts that add up without question in my mind, to the idea that in the United States, black people have it much, much harder than white people. It is an unequal playing field. There are empirically measurable disparities. There is racism. Why? I have an explanation. It's our attitudes and also our systems, entrenched wealth and opportunity, historical discrimination, current legal and de jure discrimination. All of those things I think can be proved via empirical evidence, the totality of which leads me to the conclusions that I have stated. It also leads me to say that a movement like Black Lives Matter is fair and pressing. What it does not lead me to believe, however, is in the concept of white privilege. I will explain that specifically, but my point in this spiel is more general. We have, at this time, several fairly pervasive frameworks that I find less convincing than just a recognition of the facts That lead to building those frameworks. I'll give you another example. I think there's a big problem in prosecuting non-consensual sexual encounters. So often, he said, she said cases aren't pursued and justice is denied. And victim blaming is a common defense tactic that's bad. And young men do not have the right attitude towards consent. I believe all that. But I don't buy that we live in a rape culture. Rape culture, like white privilege, intersectionality, gender fluidity, name any other number of current sociological phenomena, they're built from empirically derived facts. The evidence is the building block of a framework, but then the frameworks go beyond the facts. A sociological theory or phenomenon, I'm calling it a framework here, not only organizes that which is known, but to be compelling, it has to go beyond. It has to explain the world going forward has to make sense of the trends, offer an explanation that serves as a prediction. Social science is there to tell you what will happen, just as hard science will tell you that, you know, cobalt melts at 27, 23 Fahrenheit. Yeah, I just knew that off the top of my head. And you can be sure that your cobalt will melt. You don't have to take it to a kiln. You know that they have a definition of melting point, and this is telling you what will happen. So back to white privilege. My problem with white privilege is that Part of it is pretty true and fairly obvious and can probably be better defined as something like this. Black people are generally, systematically, socially disadvantaged in America. But there are so many exceptions to that statement that I wonder how well the framework holds up. Take a white baby born addicted to opioids outside of Charleston, West Virginia. Put that baby in a series of foster homes. He fails to get a high school education. He falls into his own opioid abuse. He dies early. Now, a believer in white privilege would say, well, you know, white privilege as a theory, as a framework, it doesn't preclude bad outcomes for some white people. The advantage is given to society in general. But I have to wonder, for how many people do the exceptions to the framework have to be exceptions before the framework stops being an accurate description for an entire society? What do we need? A third of Appalachian opioids? There's massive mental illness. There's depression. There's desperation. Do we not factor this at all into the framework? Now, the true and obvious point seems to be that in general, white people are more advantaged than black people and Hispanic people in America. Furthermore, a lot of the advantage is baked into the system. It's not just about the niceness of white people. It's systemic. So I buy all that, but I stop at the white privilege framework. Now, I understand the framework, white privilege. It's not just about who has more money or who has a better life. It's about how society is organized down to the default color of band-aids. Band-Aids come up a lot in the literature. But the explanation, white privilege, has become unmoored to its provable or falsifiable components and has taken on the cast of an aura. It's become a cudgel, It's become an immutable source of guilt or resentment. It's become an almost magical quality that a person necessarily has or doesn't have that describes almost everything that happens to a person. It's like your life force or your chi or the force in Star Wars. How do I stop white privilege? Can't be stopped. How do I fight it? Impossible to fight. Can be recognized. That is the best we could do. You may wish to believe in that framework if it points out some truths to you. Hey, the Band-Aids really are kind of peach color. Huh, how about that? But the truths, those are the real parts. That's what I embrace. White privilege is an idea that explains facts, but so many facts fall outside the scope of the idea. Class, not race, holds a huge explanation for what goes on in America. Race affects class, which needs to be taken into account, of course, there are ways for economists and sociologists to quantify this. But the explanation white privilege doesn't comfortably coexist with class-based explanations of society. Also, the white privilege framework, saying it, believing it, uh, advancing it, does get white people pretty defensive. It seems to have added to polarization. Yeah, I know, too bad. It's not the African-American Studies Department's job to heal white America. But... If anyone ever wants to win a national election, wielders of white privilege as rapier might want to consider what's going on. But the big thing to me is that white privilege is not a thing I can change. But you know what is? Maybe, if I try, if we all do, incarceration rates, housing rules, the terms of bail. And I know the term is going to change. All these these phrases change all the time. 15 years ago, white privilege was routinely called white skin privilege. Then the skin part dropped away. One reason why sociological frames bubble up and take hold is that changing the language of a problem is a lot easier than changing a problem. Also, it seems to me that a lot of these in vogue ways of looking at the world are born in academia, where A, the audience is less eager to push back, and B, you know, the social sciences exist in part to offer new labels for the world. You don't get tenure for saying, yeah, that guy who's already here, his ideas are good. Let's keep doing that. Now, of all the sociological frames that I mentioned as me not being a subscriber to, I think white privilege might be the best. Let's now look at rape culture. There is too much rape. There are compelling statistics that rape is underreported by victims, undercharged by prosecutors. Uh, We have discussed that on our show. Also, men can be pigs, and they're more powerful than women, and a lot of them have the wrong message about just about everything having to do with sex. But rape culture, I don't know what that means. Not that I haven't looked into it. It just seems to mean everything. Every accusation proves rape culture. Every denial proves rape culture. Every prosecution and non-prosecution both show there's rape culture. In 1985, Ms. Magazine did a story called Date Rape, the story of an epidemic and those who deny it. It was a strong corrective. It was on the cutting edge to trying to end rape, this, this facet of rape, to try to change our thinking about rape. It was what you might call in 1985, quite progressive. I was just looking up what are the tenets of rape culture today. This is written by Nikki Lisa Cole, sociologist. Rape culture, language, and discourse. Terms like acquaintance rape or date rape make false distinctions about the crime of rape. So talking about date rape now, that's part of rape culture. And here's another, I think, big problem that in America, the accusation of rape is the accusation of a crime. So just as we wouldn't throw out reasonable doubt when someone is accused of murder and we shouldn't, we do the same with an accused rapist. But activists say that that helps perpetuate a rape culture. Uh, Same article talked about what else are aspects of rape culture, denying rape, victim blaming, Support for accused men and boys over concern for welfare of victim. There are high profile activists who have said the crime of rape is so unique and serious that we should use a guilty until proven innocent standard for it. That is ridiculous. And saying so is not the perpetuation of rape culture, by the way. I have asked people who believe in the idea of rape culture to describe a current society that isn't a rape culture those people cannot do so. I have asked one or two of them, tell me when America will stop being a rape culture. And they say, when there are no more rapes. I would like that. But if the presence of one rape makes a culture, I would hazard to say that we should reckon ourselves to our perpetually being inside a rape culture. By this measure, America is very much a cattle rustling culture. Rape is a unique crime in some ways, but it is a crime which, tends to cast doubt on the idea that it's culturally approved, it's a crime that should be taken seriously and prosecuted more thoroughly. I don't think there's a need to believe in this, what seems to me, unfalsifiable framework. I could go on and on as a man explaining things, which there ought to be a word for, but all I'm saying is that to me, evidence is often compelling. (laughs) And I shape my opinions around that. And I want the world in America to change in certain ways towards justice. It's just that the constructs that are built from the evidence are often far less than solid. I have been accused of privilege. I have been accused of buying into rape culture. I have no response to that. It's like being accused of lacking the right kind of magic. But if I were ever to have a debate about Say, exoneration rates among African Americans, then we could have solid ground. Then we could get somewhere. And you, by the way, listener, especially listener who believes in white privilege and rape culture and is still listening, God bless you, by the way, but you reject frameworks all the time, right? You think the idea of American exceptionalism is off. You don't subscribe to the notion of dominion theology. Do you even know what it is? It's the idea that God let us, you know, rule the animals and the grass and do what we want to the environment. There are elements of each of those, by the way, that make sense, right? The fact is America is the most powerful country in the world. It's the most popular destination for migrants. Its citizens enjoy an extremely high, if not the highest per capita income. There are exceptional things about America. But when we go beyond the provable facts, the rest of the theory doesn't hold up. You could probably accept the true parts and discard the extra scaffolding built around it, and you are a better thinker for it. That's how I think of what I've been talking about with these nouveau frameworks. I figure most of them will mutate or die during my lifetime anyway, and that's fine. All it means is that I'm not going to spend a lot of time squaring the cognitive dissidents created with the parts of these theories that don't fit. In the meantime, I can concentrate on the discernible problems of our society. There's enough of them to keep us all pretty busy. And that's it for today's show. Chris Berube, Gist producer, if he's listening, I think said to himself, I took an okay week to take off. Mary Wilson, Gist producer, will be manning the at Slate Gist Twitter feed tonight. Oh, God, put on a pot of coffee. It's going to be a long one. Steve Lictia is executive producer of Slate Podcast. He would like you to know that he in no way vets his show hosts for content, sensitivity, brevity, or wokeness. The Gist, squad goals. I forgot to mention squad goals. That one is bullshit, too and thanks for listening okay I'm just going to skip intersectionality I know America's clamoring for my thoughts on intersectionality but I'm going to skip it I'm going to blow past it